a moment ago, Jordan alluded to the fact that this is Doubting Thomas Sunday. It's a Sunday when I hopefully, like all other Sundays, those in the congregation who struggle with doubts persistently about faith, about evil in the world, about the future, or the power of Christ, are welcome. Today, more than any other, I hope, as she said, you find yourself at home here. I've learned um, that doubt is sometimes uh, put in the church's mind as being the polar opposite of faith. So Christians who doubt are sometimes um, thinking or led to believe that they don't have faith. But sometimes I think doubt is only faith looking for a reason to believe. I think we are caught in our lives between the tension of things that we hope are true and we think are true, but then the daily wear and tear of life just seems to defy all of those hopes and expectations. So faith and doubt are not necessarily on opposite ends of the spectrum. Perhaps doubt is on the way to faith. Perhaps all of us, not some of us, all of us, already believe. Christ, help us to believe more fully. When I was a young preacher, I started preaching on Easter my first year. I was not very good. I wanted to get better and I didn't know how, so I'd go watch other preachers. That was the first mistake. Most of the great preachers back in that day, at least, this was in the uh, (laughs) mid-1800s, were not pastors. So they weren't preaching in the local church context. They were preaching one-and-dones. They didn't have to work this out in daily life. And when you put that together with the difference in personality that they had, it was hard for me to imitate them. Nevertheless, I thought one Easter, my first, I would give it a try. One of my favorite preachers was Tony Campolo. And uh, I mean, this guy could make it rain on a good day. And so I was in Detroit a couple months before Easter and I watched Tony speak in front of a large auditorium then called Cobo Hall. And he told his now famous story, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. He used some of the language from the African-American preacher S.M. Lockridge, who put words to this longing that Christians have. Lockridge would say something to the effect of, it's Friday, the disciples are running in terror. Peter is denying, the priests are lying, Judas is betraying because nobody knows it's Friday. And he told us how when Lockridge preached this, the audience pretty soon caught on. You understand, African-American churches, that happens sooner than not. Now, I understand this is the different context, but it does not take much in that context, they could feel the wave coming. I could feel the wave coming as Campolo reiterated that sermon. 
then he got to the end of that sermon and he reached into the popular culture, all the things that we were dealing with and struggling with and the corruption and the crime and the chaos, the discouragement, the war, all of it. And he weaved that into his sermon and said, but that's because it's Friday. And man, that whole auditorium jumped on their feet spontaneously and they shouted in reply, Sunday's coming. Well, Howie, he had me. I thought, man, I got to do this in my church. So I went back to my church of 21, 15 of which were in the later years, a church that had gone from 83 down to 21 in less than four months. They lost three-fourths of their people just before I got there. And I found a way to, at the end of this Easter sermon, to take Campolo's grand ending and weave that into my sermon. Man, I could feel it coming. I was about to learn. I was the only one. When I started to load that sermon at the end, so you come to the climax, I got to the end and I shouted at the top of my lungs, it's Friday. <laughs> and they were all doing what you all are doing, just looking at me. <laughs> so I backed up, I reloaded that sermon again, went halfway through the ending, built the momentum, and I thought, man, this time, they're gonna get it. And I built that thing to another climax, and I went, that's because it is Friday. Dead silence. It's like telling a joke nobody laughs at. That's why I don't tell them up here. It's like that, I ain't funny. So, I finally backed up and said, Listen, here's what we're going to do. <laughs> it's like telling the end of a joke before you tell the joke. Because you know that they're not going to do it. And so I gave them instructions and I backed up. I reloaded the sermon. I got to the end and said, it's Friday. And about four of them mumbled. Sunday woman. That was it. And I thought to myself, man, I have the worst church in the world. I mean, why can't these people get excited on Easter Sunday morning? How can you not feel this? If Jesus is alive, why are y'all so dead? I stayed there six years. In those six years, I started figuring it out. One of them, Mary, suffered rheumatoid arthritis. Her hands, both of her hands were literally like this. They were closed. She, could, she hadn't opened her fingers in years. And yet, despite the pain, she'd meet every Friday in her house with a group of older women, and they would pray for the leadership and pray for the church and then they would try to sew together. Literally, I'd watched her do it. She would sew quilts that she could give away to young mothers. None were in our church, but she, 
she would give away quilts that she sewed and then they would wrap bandages to give to hospitals on the mission field. One of them was a man in his 60s who was struggling with pornography and he had begun to act out some of his um, fantasies. He had messed with things and messed with people and that he'd lost integrity in the community and he had lost intimacy with his wife. And yet at the same time, he was witnessing every single week at work, he was using his own money to do things in the church when our money was gone. Well, we had no money. He was involved in things in the community that was raising people out of poverty, and yet he struggled. He struggled with this addiction to sexual pleasure. One of them was an 83, 85-year-old woman who lived with her son. More accurately, he lived with her because they told me he hadn't been right since the night he shot his wife at about midnight. He mistook her for an intruder. He reached in the drawer, pulled out his handgun, and fired down the hall. It was his wife. She'd gotten out of bed, and he killed her. And he'd lost it. And so he couldn't hold down a job. He was mentally, mentally um, just not able And so his mother, now in her 80s, had found a way to create a little home, a humble little house that was safe and stable so her son could come and live with her. He had never moved out. He would drive her to church and then drop her off and then he'd go back. One of them was a teacher at New York University, used to teach history. He had a PhD in history. He was brilliant, but he decided to take in a young man, so far as we knew, that was homeless. A lot of drama and tension in his background, and yet there was tension now in this old man's life because he, he made room for somebody that, was, that no one would make room for. Last conversation I had with the old man, I was in this church. Heard he was dying, so I called him on the phone. I said, Henry, is it true? Are, you, uh, are things as bad as they say? And we talked for four or five minutes. And then in his crackling voice, he said, well, Brother Steve, <laughs> he said, this will be our last conversation. But we'll talk again. So that kind of tension between everyday drama, a problem I want to fix, but it just keeps creating tension and drama. I know this is the right thing to do, but why isn't this easier? And yet his life was filled with faith. It occurred to me the longer I lived in that church that the reason these people could not get excited on Easter Sunday morning is because for them it was always Friday. Every week, It was new things happening that denied the hope of Sunday. Every week they would come into the service, they would temporarily on Easter Sunday suspend their disbelief. And then because life was as big and overwhelming as it always is, they would pick it up again on their way out the door. The chaos, the confusion, the drama, the war, the conflict, the divorce, the isolation. They lived in it all the time. No wonder they couldn't get on their feet. Just before I left that church, it occurred to me for most believers today, even for us, Easter always happens on Friday. We never seem 
to get rid of Friday. In fact, the one giant flaw in Tony Campolo's otherwise brilliant sermon is that it implied when Sunday came, Friday would be over. But you know better, don't you? Friday is always here. Why can't we get to Easter? Last Sunday, I tried to paint a picture, at least in this service, of Matthew's gospel. I said one of the striking features in Matthew's gospels was the earthquake that happened on Good Friday and it happened again on Easter Sunday. This earthquake on Good Friday, it said, shook the earth, split the rocks, cracked open the tombs, and some who were dead came out of their graves and walked around. And then on Sunday morning, this earthquake came back again and it shook the earth and it moved the stone so that when the women got there, the angel was sitting on top of the stone. It was pretty clear who did that. This earthquake, we said, was prophesied in the Old Testament. Isaiah said there will come a day when God will shake the earth and the earth will move like a hut driven by the wind. Ezekiel said the day is coming when the Lord will shake the earth and he will reveal his greatness and his holiness in front of all the nations. Haggai said, the day is coming when the Lord will shake the heavens and shake the earth like he will shake the nations. And then the desire of all nations will rise in the sight of all. And Daniel said, the day is coming when the Lord will shake the earth and some who are dead will rise from the dust of death and they will live again. All of this happened on Good Friday and Easter. I said to you last week, what was happening on Easter was that God was taking something we always thought would happen at the end of time and he was sticking it into the middle of time. So let me show you what I mean. Prior to Easter, everyone in the world saw the world and their lives in two different time zones. One of those was the present. The world was formed here and it will end here. I was born here and I die here. The other is the world that is to come. It's the one that God is going to make new. As soon as this world has ended, God is going to form a new creation. As soon as I die, I will rise again in the newness and in glory, and the next world will begin. What happened on Easter is God took the beginning of the world to come and dropped it right into the middle of the present world. This means, dear Christian, that you live this morning in two worlds. 
You live in the one that is broken and confused in which people are separated and there is isolation and loneliness and drama and war, but you also live in one that God is making new. And these are happening to you at the same time. And you have been groomed by society, indeed by bad theology in local churches, that you have to wait until this world is over for that one to begin. If we taught you that, we were wrong. That one has begun now, and this one has not yet ended. Am I back in my first church or what? <laughs> you understand what this means, church? Everything that you're waiting to happen in the end of time has already started. Yes, it is small. Yes, it is imperfect. Yes, we get it wrong more than we get it right. But somewhere in this world, God has already planted seeds of resurrection and they are coming to life. If you can't see it, it's because you, like me, have been groomed to look only at what is wrong. You cannot see what God is doing because you're so focused on a world that is broken that God has put into a broken world people and organizations that are slowly getting some things right. Praise God. There is no shorter way to say this than the way Paul said it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He said, we have this treasure in jars of clay. Do not miss the preposition. We have this treasure in jars of clay. The treasure is wrapped, intertwined in the jars of clay. We may live in jars of clay, but thank God we have this treasure. We have a treasure <laughs> but we have it in jars of clay. This is what Paul meant when he said, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection in Philippians chapter 3 verse 10. I want the power that raised Christ from the dead. I want to know that power today, he said. This is what Paul said in Romans chapter 8, verse 11. The spirit who raised Christ from the dead, comma, is living in you. Exhale. 
The spirit that raised Christ from the dead is already living in you. And the one who raised Christ from the dead, he says, will one day raise your mortal bodies. This is what Paul prayed in Ephesians chapter one, where the incomparable greatness of his power that is already at work in those who believe. That's you, that's now. That power, said Paul, is like the power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand of God. That is an enormous amount of power. But it's not the power you've been looking for. Because you like me, have been groomed to think of power as only one thing. The power in Mark's gospel moves the stone and you can't see who did it. It's invisible. You never see it. But you know where it's been. The power in Mark's gospel never comes out boldly and presents itself. Jesus is never seen in the first eight verses of Mark's gospel. The, the, the resurrection is a rumor. And the women are told that they should spread this word and they leave in terror and amazement. So they're caught between fear and the Greek ecstasis or ecstasy. They're caught in this emotional tension between fear and ecstasy and they never say anything to anyone the end. Do you see it? Mark's gospel, his story of the resurrection, the one that you, you want to get up on Easter and shout and celebrate was written to people who were trapped in this world with jars of clay. But they have this treasure. Think about this. If the resurrection of Christ is at the very least the raising and the transformation of a human body, what does that say to your physical body? I think we have severed somehow our Christian ideas of the body from the resurrected body of Christ. If the resurrection of Christ means that the power that raised him is living in you, it means that power has the power to change and transform your physical body. You are not stuck with your desires. They are not all physical. It is not your body. It is the house 
of the Holy Spirit. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that those who are raised with Christ are one with him. Therefore, he says, when we take what Christ has raised and we use it or engage it in things that are not of Christ, it is below us. There are some things, church, you do not do with your body, not because it's sin, but because it is below you. That is the very essence of what sin is. Falling short of the glory of God. This has profound ramifications on the way you think of your body and use your body and take care of your body in this world. What Christ will raise someday, what y'all hoping for, is not another species. It is the very species that you belong to right now. Or how do you explain holes in flesh? How does a ghost have holes? How does a ghost sit up? How does a ghost walk around? It is the flesh of God that is walking around. And this has profound implications on the way we think of our physical being in this world. As Ernst Kosselman put it, our body is the one place in this world which we ourselves are and for which we bear responsibility. Some of you are nodding. The others are thinking. Four of you are mad. It works the other way, church. It means if we have this treasure wrapped in jars of clay, not only does the power of the resurrection feed into our daily lives right now, but it means that what we are doing right now has ramifications in the resurrection. It means your work, your family, the relationships that you have have profound ramifications in the resurrection. It means that you are not just making a living. You're not just holding back evil. You're not just biding time so God will wipe everything out and start over again. No, you are tomorrow morning creating things that God himself will raise and transform in the next life. And this means that when things happen to us in this life, we have resurrection power to do in this life things that will become evident in the life to come. And one day, says Paul, when Christ, who is your life, shall appear, then you will appear with him in glory. Translate that. It means the things that God is doing in you right now, the things that no one can see, the things that are invisible to the world, but they are steadily growing inside of you, 
One day when Christ appears, those things will be evident in front of the world. We will see the spirit and the life that we have been building all along. Man, you guys, mm, you all need to be bit by the resurrection. Man, I'm saying, this is incredible truth. What you do and what you are becoming in spite of all the stuff that's happening to you right now is creating in you something that will one day be evident to the world. It's hard for some of you. It's insufferable, it's unfair, it's unjust. All of that stuff is true in jars of clay. But what's also true is that is just more weight on the bar, man. And what God is forming in you is becoming stronger in ways that this world or society cannot appreciate. Lean into that. Um, Eugene Peterson, great pastor, theologian, linguist. He tells the story of a couple who's friends of his, always wanted to see Mount Monadnack. It's in southern New Hampshire. If you're a hiker or even a tourist, Mount Monadnack is this 4,000-foot summit, which is more or less the crown jewel of that part of the country. If you're in the area, you got to see it. So Robert and Ann are driving one day and all of a sudden Ann says, hey, we're close. Why don't we go see Mount Monadnack? Robert suddenly swings the car around. He drives back to the intersection, takes the road that leads to the mountain. They go down about a mile or two, they see a sign. It says, Mount Monadnack State Park. Ah, this must be it, they say. They drive by the sign two or three miles. There is no mountain. They start looking around. They look through the clearing. They don't see anything. Finally, Robert does what all frustrated men do, pulls the car over, grabs the map, like that's gonna help, and starts looking at it, saying, well, well let me see where we're at. So. He pauses and looks at it, and then he goes, well, wait a minute, yeah, 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 it's right here, I see it. There's a pause, and then he says, no, wait a minute, <laughs> maybe it's over here. Well, whatever, he wads it up and throws it on the floor, pulls back, <laughs> this is so much like home, pulls back on the road and just starts driving. They walk, or they drive by a sign that says, Mount Monadnack Furniture. Mount Monadnack Realty, Mount Monadnack Architecture, but there is no mountain. Finally, he says, just before dusk, there is a breaking in the trees. I look through the trees, and the sun is beginning to set. The rocks are purple, and suddenly it occurs to Anne, 
And she says, wait a minute. Maybe we're on it. (laughs) Peterson says, this is how the resurrection occurs to us. We hear a lot about it. We want to see it someday. It's almost like magic. It transforms everything just like that. So we go driving around through the passages of St. Paul's letters. We see the signs. We recite the prayers. We sing the hymns every Sunday. And there is no resurrection. We travel to holy sites. We practice the use of icons thinking maybe this will stir up something and we'll see the resurrection, but there is no resurrection. And then it occurs to us, he says, one day that our whole lives has been lived on the resurrection. It is not out there in front of us. It is not something you can make happen. This is not you. This is him. Whatever you're living with, whatever you got to deal with, whatever is wrong with the world and you want fixed, whatever you've heard from physicians or from counselors, whatever is in your neighborhood that you can't change, It's all happening on top of the resurrection. Easter, Sunday, isn't coming. Sunday is here. It is with us. We are on it. It is under us. Would you bow your head? It is my custom sometimes to read over you passages of scripture that I think will say better. And as usual, much sooner than anything I've said. I want to do that this morning. And I want to speak specifically to those of you that carried, like those good dear people, doubts and frustrations into this sanctuary that you hoped resurrection would fix in a day. I want to read this over people that are frustrated, maybe even angry, with the world's stubbornness to transformation. I want to read this over people that are trapped in between fear and ecstasy. Hear the word of the Lord. Church, our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. All of creation groans. Indeed, we ourselves groan for that day when creation is liberated from its bondage, for that day when our adoption as the children of God is final. 
But in the meantime, we know this, God is working all things to our good because we are called according to his good purpose. And those whom God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that Christ will be the firstborn among many to come. And those whom God predestined in this way, he called. And those whom God calls, he justifies. And those whom God justifies, he glorifies. So if God is for you, who can be against you? If God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also with him give you all things? Who will bring a charge against you? Who will condemn you? It is God who justifies. Who is the one that condemns? Christ himself has died. More than that, was raised to life and is now seated at the hand of the Father, interceding for you. So who will ever separate you from the love of God? Is it trouble? Persecution? Chaos? War? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I am convinced that Nothing, not even death itself, nor anything in life, nor things in the present, nor in the future, will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. Therefore, my friends, we may be hard-pressed on every side, but we are not crushed. We may be confused, yes, but we are never in despair. We are at times persecuted, yes, but we are never abandoned. When we are struck down, we cannot be destroyed. Someone has said, I believe, and therefore I've spoken. So we believe, and therefore we speak, because we know that the one who raised Jesus from the dead is living in us and he will one day raise us with Jesus and present us together to himself. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Outwardly, we're getting weaker, yes, but inwardly, we are being renewed day after day after day. And these light and momentary troubles are only achieving for us an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs them all. So fix your eyes not on what has already happened or on what is seen. Fix your eyes on what has not happened yet, on what is unseen, for what is seen is passing. But what is unseen will last forever. The word of the Lord.